This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Well, Dr. Craig, it is such an honor to have you here doing an interview on Capturing Christianity. I can't say enough how much your work has meant to me and my own personal journey in apologetics. It's such an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you. So we're actually doing this interview in conjunction with the Evangelical Philosophical Society. They have been so generous to give us this room to help us set up so that we could perform these interviews and do these interviews with all of these great Christian philosophers. In addition to them, we've also partnered with Defenders Media. They provide media solutions for apologetic ministries. They've been such uh, great allies for us in these interviews. Well, let's go ahead and just jump right into the interview, which we're talking about the atonement. And for most Christians, actually, and I don't know how familiar you are with this, well, this idea of most lay Christians, just the nominal Christians who's attending the church, they may not even know what atonement means, what the, the word itself means. That, that word may just go straight over their heads. Yes. So let's talk very briefly at the outset about what atonement is. What, is. what does that word mean? Where does it come from? This is an essential question. Because the word atonement turns out to be very ambivalent in its meaning, if you take the word etymologically, it comes from a phrase in Middle English that means at-one-ment, which is a state of harmony or oneness with God. So atonement in this etymological sense of the word is a state of reconciliation with God. But that's not the way the Hebrew and Greek words that are typically translated by the English word atonement or to atone are used. The way those words are used uh, means to cleanse or to purge or to expiate sin or impurity. And this is a completely different meaning of the word atonement. So when we talk about atonement, it's important to understand whether we're using the word biblically or we're using the word etymologically. This is crucial, I think, because the work of many Christian philosophers on the atonement has been about atonement in the etymological sense of reconciliation or oneness, and it has completely ignored the biblical understanding of atonement as expiation or purging or, or cleansing. And so it turns out that there are theories of atonement have nothing to do with atonement in the biblical sense of the word, and therefore are not adequate theories of the atonement. That is so incredibly amazing. So atonement has this double meaning, the it way does. that we use it. So the first way was, remind me again. The first way is the sense of oneness or harmony. Reconciliation? Oneness, yes, reconciliation. The closest Greek word in the New Testament for this would be katalage, which is the word reconciliation. And this certainly does stand at the heart of the gospel message. Christ has reconciled us to God. But how has he done it? How does Jesus' death on a Roman cross serve to reconcile the world to God? Well, that's the question of atonement in the other sense. Jesus saw his death as an expiatory sacrifice to God, akin to the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that were offered in the tabernacle and later in the temple that, surged, uh, that served to purge 
the people of sin and impurity. And similarly, Jesus thought of his death as an expiatory sacrifice which uh, cleansed the world of its sin and thereby reconciled them to God. You've used this word a lot, expiation. Would you mind explaining what that means just briefly? Yes, expiation is the idea of uh, cleansing or purging or annulling or canceling. So Jesus' death, like the Old Testament sacrifices, served to expiate sin or impurity. That is to say, to cleanse of sin or impurity, to annul, to cancel them. And this is different than the word propitiation or to propitiate, which means to um, allay God's uh, wrath, to satisfy God's justice. And Christ's death served to do both, to expiate sin and then to propitiate God. But I was focusing here on the notion of expiation. Okay. Now, what are the different theories of the atonement and which one do you prefer what are some of the issues you see with the others? There have been many theories of the atonement offered down through history to explain the fact that Christ died for our sins. We all agree with the fact of the atonement, that Christ died for our sins. But these theories try to explain how it works. One model that was popular in the early centuries of church history was the so-called Christus Victor, model, that is Christ the victor. And the idea here was that Christ, by his incarnation, passion, and death, conquered Satan and freed us, liberated us from the bondage to death, uh, corruption, sin, and hell, so that Jesus is a sort of liberator uh, of humanity from our bondage. Another theory is the moral influence theory, that Christ's passion and death showed us the extent to which God would go to reconcile us to himself, and thereby serves to enkindle in us, in turn, a flame of love for God, so that the moral influence of Christ's death serves to draw people to repentance and faith in Christ. And that would be a second theory of the atonement, the moral influence theory. Another theory would be the so-called satisfaction theory. And according to this model, we have besmirched God's honor by sin, and thereby we owe God an infinite debt of compensation for having wronged him, which we are incapable of paying. And therefore, Christ became a man, and since he was sinless, he had no debt of his own to pay, but by the offering of his life to God, it is a kind of infinite compensatory gift that he gives to God um, on our behalf and thereby uh, pays our debt that we owe. And then the model that the Protestant reformers offered was called penal substitution. And this model differs from the others in that it says that we were guilty before God for our sins and therefore deserving of punishment. And none of us could therefore be forgiven and pardoned by God 
without that punishment being satisfied. And so Christ took on human nature, and again, because he was sinless, he could uh, offer to take that punishment upon himself in our place. And so Christ paid the penalty for the sins of the human race, thereby enabling God to offer us a free pardon of our sins and reconciliation to God. Now, I personally think that a full-orbed theory of the atonement is like a precious jewel that is multifaceted and includes all of these different elements as facets of a full atonement theory. Now, where did you get that idea from of sort of combining them all together? Was that something you came to? Did you read that? It's story? not original with me, I think, for a long time. It reminds me of Fleming Rutledge in her work on the death and the crucifixion. Right. She mentioned something along the same lines. Yes, this isn't a new idea. I think for some time, theologians have realized that all of these different atonement theories have a contribution to make, and they're based on motifs that are found in the New Testament. They're all affirmed there. And so it seems like a multifaceted model is the only way to go to have a full and adequate biblical atonement theory. Where does the ransom theory fit in here? Is that another theory that we have? That is a version of the Christus Victor theory. Interesting. Not all Christus Victor theorists hold to the ransom theory, but a few did, like the Church Father Oregon. And what he held was that we were imprisoned by Satan, and therefore a ransom had to be paid to Satan to set us free, much as a kidnapper might be paid a ransom to let his victim go. And so these church fathers believed that Satan, because of our sin, had a rightful claim to us, and that God therefore paid Christ to Satan as a ransom payment to let us go. But what Satan didn't realize was that this was the Son of God. He was not a mere human being, and so he could not be held by Satan. And so after having let all his human victims go, Christ then bursts the bonds of Satan because Satan had no claim over him being sinless. And so Satan was thereby uh, tricked, as it were, and uh, robbed of all his victims. There's not very many contemporary theologians who would hold to the ransom theory anymore because it makes the object of Christ's death Satan rather than God, which just seems misconceived. Uh, and so those who hold to a Christus Victor theory today would generally do so without the element of the ransom being paid to Satan. So before we get into the moral objections to the atonement, which is what the interview, the, the main portion of the interview is about. What got you interested in looking so deeply into the atonement? I want to write a philosophical systematic theology. And in order to do that, I need to bone up on those areas of theology where I feel weaker. And the atonement was one of these. For years, I've been acutely aware of the philosophical objections against uh, a Reformation doctrine of the atonement. And I had looked to my fellow Christian philosophers for some relief 
uh, in this area, but in vain, no one was willing to step up to the plate and defend a robust Reformation doctrine of the atonement. And with the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, it seemed to me that the time was long overdue for a substantial examination and defense of the reformer's view. And so I decided if no one else is going to do it, I've got to take it on myself. And so that was why I tackled the subject of the atonement. And I'm so glad I did because it has yielded rich rewards uh, personally in my increased understanding of this wonderful doctrine. One of the analogies you give in your discussion of biblical inerrancy is a web of beliefs. Hmm. Talk about like, it's think about a spider web. Yeah. And at the center of the spider web are the more core doctrines of yes. Christian belief. Where does the atonement or theories of atonement fit for you? Is that more on the periphery? That's very interesting how you worded the, the, the question. You said, where does the atonement or theories of the atonement fit in the web? I would say that the atonement, the fact of the atonement, is essential and therefore right at the core of the Christian web of belief. But what theory of the atonement you offer is not so central. I, I think there are many different theories of the atonement that a Christian might hold. And while some of these would be less biblically adequate than others, holding to an inadequate theory of the atonement is not going to be a heresy. Uh, it's just going to be a deficiency in your web of beliefs, but, but not so central or critical as someone, for example, who de denied the fact of the atonement. So one of the objections I see from atheists a lot online is that the way that God did the atonement, the method that he used was so gruesome with, a with his cru crucifixion and death. Couldn't God have done it in a, a more, uh, more, a less gruesome way. Wasn't there another way that he could have done it? Well, this is interesting because Christian uh, theologians and even the church fathers actually differ on this question. Some say, yes, he could have done it in a different way. In fact, people like Thomas Aquinas and Hugo Grotius believe that God could have simply forgiven us all without any sacrifice on Christ's part, even without the incarnation. God could have simply forgiven us, but he chose to do it through this horrible, gruesome passion of Christ for good reasons. Namely, it serves to show the depth of human depravity and sin uh, and God's hatred of sin by so gruesome a sacrifice and secondly, it serves to show the extremity of God's love for man, that he himself would take on human flesh and go to such depths in order to redeem us to himself. So even theologians who don't think that it's absolutely necessary nevertheless believe that God had good reasons for choosing to do it this way. Now, on the other hand, there are theologians like Anselm, and I tend to sympathize with this view, who would say that the satisfaction of divine justice is a necessary condition for a divine pardon. Otherwise, God's justice would be compromised. And so the atonement serves to allow God to be fully loving and merciful, and yet fully just 
and holy. By Christ's taking upon himself the just desert of our sins, thereby satisfying God's justice, but thereby also showing God's loving kindness and mercy in paying this penalty himself in his own person so that we might go free. And the gruesomeness of it, the horror of it, is an expression of how infinite a crime we have committed against God, the depth of our depravity and wrongdoing, and what it really cost God in order to satisfy the demands of divine justice. And if atheists don't understand this, I think this simply reveals the inadequacy of their understanding of human sin and depravity. They, they treat sin lightly, and they don't understand how deep our wrongdoing and depravity really, really is. If you have a serious doctrine of sin, then you will understand why so horrible a sacrifice needed to be offered. I find this fascinating. It seems like your answer to this ties directly into your view on penal substitution being so crucial to understanding the atonement. Yes. Would you comment on that? Yes. Um, because I think penal substitution is a vital aspect of a biblical doctrine of the atonement, it means that Christ bore the suffering that we deserved as the punishment for our sins. That is to say, a central feature of retributive theories of justice is that the guilty deserve punishment. This is what justifies the state in imposing suffering upon some of its citizens. It's because those who are guilty of criminal wrongdoing deserve punishment, and therefore the state is justified. And the question is, how deep should that punishment be, right? How exactly should the punishment be? And you're saying that because the, the nature of human depravity is so wretched and deep and awful that it requires this type of punishment. punishment. Exactly. That's exactly right. The Atheist, I think, tends to think of our wrongdoing as something like jaywalking, when in fact it's more like a terrorist attack on a grade school where somebody goes in there with automatic weapons and shoots children and their teachers. But it's even worse than that. It's worse than that. I was just using that as an analogy to compare a light and trivial view of sin with someone who's really guilty of serious wrongdoing. And of course, what we would say as, as Christian theologians is that it's infinitely worse even than that terrorist attack. One of the things that Clay Jones pointed out in my interview with him was a lot of the reasons why we don't commit these acts is out of self-interest. We don't want to wind up in jail. That doesn't mean that that doesn't make us have this kind of these, these very, very immoral inclinations. A lot of times we don't act on these because of self-interest. Yeah, Clay has a very realistic, almost cynical view of human nature uh, and its goodness. And I, I fear that he's largely right about that. So here's one thing that, that Alvin Plantinga says. Here's one reason why God would want to do the atonement, the incarnation this way. And he does it in his O Felix Culpa theodicy yes. yeah. in defense of 
uh, or in response to the problem of evil. And I'm going to quote it here because it's so good. Quote, Jesus Christ, the second person of the divine trinity, incomparably good, holy, and sinless, was willing to empty himself, to take on our flesh and become incarnate, and to suffer and die so that we human beings can have life and be reconciled to the Father. In order to accomplish this, he was willing to undergo suffering of a depth and intensity we cannot so much as imagine, including even the shattering climax of being abandoned by God, the Father himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father, the first being of the whole universe, perfectly good and holy, all-powerful and all-knowing, was willing to permit his Son to undergo this suffering and to undergo enormous suffering himself in order to make it possible for us human beings to be reconciled to him. And in, the, in this, in face of the fact that we have turned our back upon God, have rejected Him, are sunk in sin, indeed are inclined to resent God and our neighbor. Could there be a more could there be a display of love to rival this? More to the present purpose, could there be a good making feature of a world to rival this? Yes, that is a statement of the atonement. You notice the word reconcile in that statement. He's talking about atonement. And Planning's point is that the self-sacrificial death of Christ is a good which is so incomparable that it may well be the case that a world, including evil and Christ's atoning death, is better on balance than a world in which people never commit moral sin and moral evil. That uh, uh, a world with evil and with the death of Christ is on balance a better world and therefore preferable world for God to create uh, over a world without sin. So there's a meme on the internet that says that Jesus only gave up a weekend. Yes, and that just shows how silly that really is. It shows no understanding whatsoever of either the depth of human depravity or what it cost Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. That's, that's very, very true. Now, the question here, if we wanted to put it a little bit more formally, is how did Jesus reconcile us to the Father in only three days? right? Because the wages of sin is death. Ah. And so how was it only three days that he was able to accomplish this instead of an infinite amount of time, which is what most Bible-believing Christians, traditionalists that believe in eternal conscious torment, they believe that you're going to be, or sinners are going to be in hell for an infinite amount of time or potential infinite amount of time. And so that's crucial, by the way, that distinction. Okay. So how, how does that, how do we understand this? If he was only dead for three days, how does, that, how does that work, mathematically? The suffering that the damned in hell will experience was compressed into that brief period of time so that it, its intensity made up for the shortness of its duration. A person who has a hangnail and suffers for eternity from that will experience infinite suffering. But at any point in time, his suffering will not be very intense. But if you compress all of that infinite suffering into a short period of time, it would be unbearable. And that's what Christ suffered. Moreover, think of this, because the sufferings of the damned are potentially infinite in duration, at no point in time will they have ever suffered more than an finite amount of suffering. It will simply go on forever, but at any point, it will always be finite. 
But Christ took the whole infinite uh, suffering uh, of every person and bore it in that short period of time. And this is why Christ experienced this forsakenness from God the Father. Would your answer differ if suppose that Christian doctrine taught that the damned would be sent to hell for a thousand days and then they would just be snuffed out? Annihilated. Yeah, if they were just annihilated. Would your answer to this be different at all? How can you compress it? It wouldn't be a days? different answer. You would still say that Christ suffered in intensity what they would suffer during whatever period of time they did exist. Okay. Now it just wouldn't be as great as suffering because it would come to an end. So another objection that I hear is this is in relation to penal substitution. How can we punish someone else? for the sins that someone else has committed. For instance, it would make no sense at all to punish my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, for sins that I myself have committed. Yes. So how is that possible? That seems You're quite impossible. right about the example of you and your daughter. But in fact, in Western systems of justice, there is a very widespread and largely uncontroversial principle of vicarious liability in both civil law and criminal law, employers can be held vicariously liable for wrongs committed by their employees in the course of their duties. So for example, um, an employee who illegally sells products to customers can be held criminally liable for that and that liability can be imputed to his employer so that the employer will be held criminally liable for the acts of the employee, even though the employer did not do them. Um, indeed, he is utterly blameless in the matter. He is not held guilty for other acts such as negligence or complicity in the crime. He is guilty without being culpable. So in fact, um, in Western systems of justice, this notion of vicarious liability, one person's being held guilty and being punished for crimes committed by another, is a very common and widespread practice. And therefore, it is quite possible for one person who did not commit a crime to be punished for the wrongs committed by another person. Here's a very novel objection I heard. I posted this on my Facebook page, and an atheist raised this question of... Oh, could I say one more thing about that? Sure. So what is critical is that a, only a person who is liable for a wrong can be punished for that wrong. And that's why your daughter couldn't be punished for your wrong. She's not liable. But in cases of vicarious liability, when the employer is punished, he is liable for those wrongs, and therefore is legally liable to punishment. A novel objection I heard from an atheist who posted on our Facebook page, I asked them for objections, moral objections to the atonement for this interview. One of the most novel objections I saw had to do with the breadth of atonement, how many people it covers. Does ever, is everybody automatically reconciled? And here's an example, an analogy I was thinking of to help flesh this out. Suppose someone rear-ended my car, and I forgave them for this crime that they committed against me, um, but they were completely unrepentant 
about it. They didn't care that they did this. They were just mocking me as I was having to deal with all of this. Is there really reconciliation happening there between those these two parties? Or is, or is atonement in this case completely impossible? If the other person that committed the crime is unrepentant. I agree with you that reconciliation is obviously not achieved in such a case. But I want to say that I think the analogy is not an adequate one because it treats God as a private party to a personal dispute. And that's inadequate biblically. Biblically, we must think of God not as a private party to a personal dispute, but rather as the judge and ruler of the universe and therefore in charge of the moral order of the universe making sure that justice is satisfied in the universe. And as such, um, God may offer a pardon to wrongdoers, but if they refuse that pardon, it is inefficacious. They then still have to pay the penalty for their wrongdoing. And this is reflected in, again, Western systems of justice. If the president offers a presidential pardon to a criminal, and that criminal refuses the pardon. He says, I do not want it. Uh, the court has ruled that that pardon then is inefficacious. It needs to be freely received in order for it to be effective. Absent its free reception, the criminal remains uh, legally liable for the sentence to which the court has punished him. In your book on the atonement, you talk about legal fictions yes. and the practical utility of these. And you say that God could have taken on the legal or the, the fiction that Jesus committed these sins yes. in order to punish him. Can you expound on that a little bit? And then also explain why an infinite God or an omnipotent being would need to use a legal fiction in, in something like this, in the atonement. This is an alternative to vicarious liability which I've already discussed a moment ago. If you think that doesn't work, then here's an alternative. Right. Although it does work, okay. so it's, a, it's just an alternative. Okay. Um, <laughs> what you could say is that God adopts the legal fiction that Christ has committed these crimes and is therefore liable for them, and therefore he punishes him for these crimes. And the use of legal fictions in Western systems of justice is again a widespread and indispensable feature of Western systems of justice. To give just one example, at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, there were slave ships who were carrying illegal cargo uh, and running the blockades. And when they were stopped, the captains and the crews would blame the ship owners for the illegal cargo and slaves they were carrying. But when the uh, owners were confronted, they would present these innocent manifests of what was supposedly on board and said they had no idea of the illegal activity of the captains and crews for um, running this illegal cargo. Well, what the courts decided is that it is the ship itself who is legally liable for the crime and is therefore criminally liable to pay the compensation. 
And this soon became a very widespread feature in U.S. maritime law, such that the phenomenon of ship personification became the accepted practice. It is the ship herself who is guilty of the crime. Now, this is obviously a legal fiction. It is ontologically wild to think that ships are persons. And yet, through the use of this legal fiction, the United States courts were able to achieve a much more coherent and just admiralty jurisprudence, which allowed them to seize these vessels, impound their cargo, and adopt a better maritime law. So this would be just one example of the use of a legal fiction whereby crimes committed by certain persons were imputed to a person who had not actually done the crimes and could therefore be held legally responsible. And in the same way, God could adopt, if he wanted to, this legal fiction that Christ had committed these sins and therefore he was legally liable for them. As to your question, well, why would an omnipotent God need to do such a thing? Well, I would just say, well, why not? Uh, it's, it's a device that he could use if he wanted to, or he could use vicarious liability. Either way is good. So you'd have to have some kind of objection to using that. And then what kind of legal implications would that have? Would they no longer to, to be able to use these, these legal fictions if these objections were sound? Well, the legal fictions apply only to the case for which they are um, applicable. Ship personification in these cases did not mean that forever after, ships sailed out of the harbor on their own as persons plotting their own courses and so forth. Obviously, they needed crews and so forth to do this. So these legal fictions are adopted for the purpose of achieving justice in a particular action. And that's what God would do in the case of Christ and humanity's standing guilty before the bar of his justice. For the specific purpose of this legal action, he could adopt this legal fiction that Christ had committed the sins. Have you noticed in popular culture that the doctrine of penal substitution has been vilified? Not in popular culture. I find that this tends to be among theologians who are insufficiently trained philosophically, especially in philosophy of law, uh, and also among Muslims who reject the death of Christ and can make no sense of Christ's uh, passion and death on our behalf. But I find on the popular level that there's just tremendous ignorance here that, as you said, the average Christian, much more the average non-Christian, doesn't have a clue what you're even talking about. So how would you say that we best combat this? I mean, you're already engaged in this. How would we best respond to these objections or? Well, in the way that I've tried to do in my little book, The Atonement, and I've developed now a study guide to go with this book so that it could be used in student groups, uh, Sunday school classes, fellowship groups in churches, and help to educate Christians so that they understand what the doctrine of the atonement is all about. This is gonna be a little bit more anecdotal. Are there any instances, people that you've talked to where you've convinced them in a conversation, or maybe not even just one conversation, but over time? Yeah, I must say the reaction of people 
to my work on the atonement has been very positive. Oh, good. I recently gave two lectures on the atonement at Azusa Pacific University. And following my first lecture, I was confronted during the Q&A by a feminist theologian who really resisted this idea of penal substitution. And we interacted on it in the course of the conversation. Then she came back the next day to hear my second lecture. And when we went out to um, the faculty dinner that evening, she at one point said to me, well, I must say that I never imagined that anyone could make the doctrine of penal substitution look as attractive as you have. And I took that to be a tremendous compliment. And if I can do anything to help to just move people toward this biblical theory of the atonement, uh, I will consider it a great success. If we can switch gears here a little bit, one of the objections my brother raised early on when I spoke with him, when he first converted or deconverted to atheism, was about the problem of the unevangelized. What do we do with the man in Africa who's never heard the gospel? Is it, isn't there something wrong with condemning this man to eternal conscious torment because he's never heard the gospel? What is your response to, to this? Approach? Well, I would say he is not condemned because of his failure to hear and believe in the gospel. The Bible indicates that God will judge people on the basis of the light that they have. And so the people who have never heard the gospel of Christ won't be judged on that basis. That will be manifestly unfair. Rather, they will be judged on how they have responded to God's general revelation in nature and conscience, which is universally available at all times in history. So God is a loving God uh, and a fair God who wants everyone to be saved and will judge people fairly on the basis of the light that they have. Now, having said that, I think that it is also possible that God has so providentially ordered the world that anyone who would believe in the gospel if he heard it is born at a time and place in history where he does hear it. And in that case, no one will be lost through historical or geographical accident. Anyone who wants or even would want to believe, uh, if he heard the gospel, will have the opportunity to hear the gospel. One of the things that you are most famous for is your debates with atheists. And not just, these aren't just atheists off the street, these are philosophers. Yes. Who are supposedly familiar with the literature and your work. In fact, I routinely turn down debates with atheists who are popularizers, who want to have the spotlight and achieve a reputation for their opposition to Christianity, but frankly, who haven't done the hard work of getting a, a degree and uh, doing serious scholarship. Um, I, I don't give these people a platform. The people that I debate are the top academic scholars uh, at secular universities who are atheists and agnostics. And is, is the reason that you do this because you don't want to give, basically you don't want to, you, you said something that was interesting, that these people, some of them just want to forward their own, I don't know, I want to call it a ministry. They're, they want to evangelize for atheism. And maybe you're, the reason that you don't do this 
is because you don't want to give them a platform. That's part of it. Some of these people are very eager to have the spotlight and be the big man, the, the, the big anti-Christian uh, figure. Um, they want to be Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or, or someone like that. And I say, you've got to earn that kind of stature and I'm not going to just give it to them. On the other hand, I have to say also very candidly that in the few cases in which I have acquiesced and debated such a person because there was no one else available, I've usually regretted it because the level of the conversation is so low that it's just awful. It's debating people who don't even understand the issues, much less are capable of giving good arguments uh, in favor of their view or good objections to mine. And so they have generally been very unprofitable. There's a few people that come to mind that as you were talking, people that you've debated that come to mind. But going back to my point earlier was that you've debated these people. And in most cases, the vast majority of cases, people think that you've won these debates. Mm-hmm. And one, the question that I have for you is, what does your preparation look like? I know that you mm. you do very intensive study on their arguments and their beliefs and their background, but what does your preparation for the actual debate look like? Do you what have- I do is I, first of all, read the work of my opponent. Um, I read what he has written on these subjects. And then having done that, I prepare responses to the objections that he raises in his published work and will most likely raise in the debate. And I craft these responses so that they are very brief, very pithy, and can be quickly uh, delivered because in a debate situation, time is so precious that you're, you're battling the clock all the, all the time. Do you um, memorize these these responses? Do you memorize them or is it- I typically don't paper? memorize them. I, I prepare what are called briefs like a legal brief. And then I file these briefs. And when the opponent gets up and he raises, say, the problem of evil, I just reach into my notebook and pull out that brief. And then I'm ready to to speak from it. And so the briefs serve as notes for speaking. And so in my rebuttal speech, I will simply go through a series of these briefs responding to his objections or his arguments for his point of view. I'll prepare both briefs which are responses to his arguments for his view, and then briefs in answer to his anticipated objections to my view. Is this what you would recommend to apologists who are getting into debating atheists? Is this the same kind of method you would suggest they use? Yes, absolutely. For anyone who wants to have this kind of ministry, preparation is going to be critical. And then what they need to do as well is they need to get some experience. They need to take a course on debating techniques, and then they need to do mock debates before they ever go into a public debate. Otherwise, they risk um, losing and um, dishonoring the gospel. So it's very important to have mock debates and practice these debating skills before you ever go onto a public platform. As you might imagine, there is a lot of young apologists that are starting to spring up. 
and our ministry is one of them. What tips do you have for Christians who are thinking about starting an apologetics ministry? Do you suggest that they go and try to start their own ministry? Do you suggest that they join an already existing organization? What are your suggestions there for I don't have any advice to give as to whether or not you should launch out on your own or work with an existing group. But I would say in terms of your personal built, uh, I wanna use a foreign word here, but, uh, but I would say in terms of your personal development that what you should do is pick an area of specialization and then become expert in that. There are historical apologetics, for example, for Jesus and the Gospels. There are philosophical apologetics, such as I'm engaged in. There are scientific apologetics, such as is done by, for example, Hugh Ross in Reasons to Believe. There are psychological apologetics. Um, and so all of these different areas are sub-disciplines of apologetics, and you can't master them all. So I would suggest specializing in one area and going deep in that, and that will be your best bet for making a contribution. Two more questions, and then we'll end this interview. The first one is, what view that you've defended are you most confident in? Somebody told me you asked Richard Swinburne this. Um, I think there are two views that I've defended in which I am the most confident. One is the dynamic or a theory of time, and the other is anti-realism about abstract objects. Very interesting. So a theory, that is, you're most confident about that. Yes, I think that people who deny the reality of tense are almost out of their minds. I mean, this is something that is more evident to us than the existence of the external world, which is itself a tensed reality. But in addition to that, you have the tensed internal experience of the contents of consciousness. So I, I'm baffled that anybody could believe that reality is not tensed. Is that your general argument in defense of a theory of time? Is yes, that, I think it it's finally so rooted in, in the presentness of experience what D.H. Miller called the presence of experience. I think that is the bedrock upon which the tense theory of time is based. I cannot coherently deny the presentness of my experience of the present. So it seems like you're working off an epistemological principle, something like phenomenal conservatism. I'm going to use some some philosophical technical terminology here. So if it seems to you that the world is this way, then in the absence of defeaters, you've got some justification. Well, for I do think it would case. be a properly basic belief, yes, in that sense. And then and, you have no defeaters. Yes, and, and that there isn't any sort of conceivable defeater in this case, because any defeater that was brought would probably in, involve the reality of tense. So it's really hard to understand how this theory could be defeated. So the last question that I have for you is, what view that you've defended are you least certain of? Oh, well, it would probably be one of the arguments for God's existence. Uh, maybe, for example, the Leibnizian argument from contingency. This depends crucially on the premise that everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. And it's difficult to force someone to 
adopt that premise. It seems right to me, um, but I think that would probably be challengeable in one of the areas where I would say it seems right to me, but if, if you want to deny it, uh, okay. Well, that's interesting because that's actually the argument that I'm most confident about. Oh, in, interesting. In well, then maybe uh, what about the ontological argument? The, the first premise of the ontological argument that it's possible that a maximally great being exists. Again, that seems right. I'm confident that that's true, but it's not the sort of thing you can force someone to adopt. I think, I think you almost can. There's, there's two philosophers. There's Mike Almeida and Yujin Nagasawa. And these guys, they actually posted an article on my blog. Together, they wrote this article in defense of the ontological argument. They call it, they title it, A Faultless Modal Ontological Argument. And they basically try to cohere the different properties and say, if there's some kind of incoherence yeah. among the divine properties, then you basically just go a step below. And you take out, say, instead of all-knowing or all-powerful, you just take it one step below that. Yeah. And that being is therefore God, because no impossible being could be God. Right, right. And so... What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think maybe I need to read these articles and shore up my sagging confidence. <laughs> Yujin Nagasawa's new book on it is, is incredible. I don't know if you've Very read good. that one. No, I, I have not. You're entrenched in the, the work that you're doing yeah. now. So, well, anyways, Dr. Craig, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Capturing Christianity. Hopefully we can do it again uh, sometime again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.